0: Uh, so if you've got the, a Bible, uh, open it up to the book of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament, Ephesians. Um, and I'm just going to share with you a couple of verses, actually, and try to kind of unpack them. And, and Pastor CJ asked me to share my own story. So I'm going to kind of use Ephesians to weave in some of my own story as well. And you'll probably recognize uh, why he gets me to share my story. Because usually when pastors say that, oh, Mark, come share your story with my congregation. They'll, you know, they'll, it'll encourage them. What that usually means is you're gonna realize I'm such a disaster, you feel better about yourself. That's really what the deal is. So the book of Ephesians starts this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So just stop right there. So first, Paul goes, hey, I wanna start out by just telling you who's writing this letter and my name is Paul, and he's writing it to this church in Ephesus. And right there, even if you're new with us at Northview, maybe you're exploring Christianity, we're glad you're here, and maybe you go, man, Paul, I mean, God used him to change Western civilization, to plant all these churches all over the uh, Asia Minor, all over the Roman Empire. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament, super smart guy. Well, He must have been a really religious person. He must have had no mistakes, no sins, no foibles, about him, like me, and that's who God uses, right? People that don't have anything wrong with their life, And eh, you would be wrong if that's what you think. Because the Apostle Paul, when you begin to look at it, he was a murderer. Any murderers in the house? Didn't think so. so. So he was a murderer. He oversaw the killing of the first Christian. In Acts chapter 8 and 9. So you begin to realize who, and this is the first big idea, maybe the big idea of the day, who does God use? Not perfect people. He doesn't use perfect people. He uses people not because of them, but in spite of them. He uses people just like you and me, with mistakes and sins that the people around you don't even know about because they're so secret. Things about you, mistakes you've made. And some of you are like, no, 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 you don't understand, Pastor Mark. God could never use me, all right? Mark, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know my family scenario. You don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know the sins I've done. You don't know the financial things. I. You don't know, God could never use someone like me. And I am here to tell you, man, I am the poster boy. A poster boy, for God could never use me. I literally grew up in, in an atheistic home that was so atheistic, so I never walked, walked through a church till I was about 19 years old. Okay, so came to I didn't want to go to church. I you know I thought it would be just or, orange shag carpet and smell like mothballs and everybody would be 200 years old, and I didn't want to go. But finally I walked through a church, and the only reason I stayed is because there was pretty girls there. That was when I was 19. But. Before that, I grew up in an atheistic home. Like no, I'm talking no church at Christmas, Easter, like no Bible, no church, no prayer, no nothing. My dad was so atheistic that he, my mom wanted to name my brother Matthew. And my dad said no, because there's a Bible book called Matthew. So you're not allowed to call him that, all right? So literally my mom, the compromise was, well, what if I call him Matthew, but I spell his name with one T? And my dad's like, fine, whatever. So, My brother's name is Matthew with one T, right? Four years later, they have me and name me Mark. So clearly this guy has never picked up a Bible in his life. (laughs) Like if I had another brother, I think Luke's a good name. We should name him Luke. Like literally my middle name is Andrew. My brother's middle name is James. So we got four disciples knocked out (laughs) right off the bat. So he is clueless. My dad was clueless. He died when I was 15 years old. Uh, and it made me ask a lot of big questions about origins, and meaning, and morality, and destiny. And ultimately, I came to know Jesus late in high school. Um, but I began to realize, like, my, so my parents got divorced when I was uh, about eight or nine years old. And when that happened, I developed something called, the, the, the doctor kind of said the trauma of that event created something in my brain that kind of clicked. And I developed something called Tourette Syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you don't know what Tourette's syndrome is, it's a way definitely not to be cool in high school at all because you develop all these weird habits and tics, right? And so when I'm up here, you're gonna see my body flinches around, my face tweaks out, and it's like, what is wrong with him, man? This guy's got too much coffee going on. It is Tourette's. And so what happened when I was a kid is I grew up like, and I would do, if you've ever seen like videos of people with Tourette's, like the classic, I would swear randomly, like F, F, like not the letter, like the word, F, right? I'm just saying that, ah, you're nice church people, you're like, what the? So I'd randomly just walk around and throw F-bombs, or F, F, like I'd stand at a bus stop, and I'd just be like 12 years old, waiting for the bus. Like F, people were like, what the? You know, whatever. And I, uh, I remember sitting in this classroom, maybe you know, these big exams, and it would be like 200 people in the gymnasium, and it'd be dead silent, and that was my worst fear. Because all you want to do when you have Tourette's is make a noise. So it's like dead silent. you And know, everyone's like, "Ooh!" And I, I, uh, I actually preached at a men's conference a year or so ago in Seattle. And the pastor got up. And just before I spoke, I'm like sitting in the front row, you know, ready to go. And he's like, okay, everybody. I want everyone to be dead silent for two minutes. And I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do this to me. So that's just kind of, I, I, I spoke at a church uh, recently and, and I got up and, you know, preacher, whatever, a couple of weeks later, I got this email from this girl. She's like, Hey, I haven't been going to church in a while. And I showed it to this church. And, uh, you know, I feel I always, when I go into church, I want to, like, be used by God to, like, speak to people. And then she's like, So I saw this, like, guy in the back, and he was homeless, and he was all, like, weird and, and twitching around. And, and so I said, Hey, I got to go talk to the guy. And I waited for the song to end. But then, right when the song ended, the pastor invited uh, the, the guest speaker for the week. And it was you. It was you were the homeless man in the back. So, so here's my lot in life is I have this thing that I gotta deal with. Now here's the one job you're never gonna get in life when you randomly throw F-bombs around. A preacher. <laughs> right? It's not gonna work. Welcome to Northview. F, join a small group. What? <laughs> but here's the thing about each and every one of you. God can use you and will use you, not because of you, but in spite of you. And this is what the apostle Paul is doing. He's going, hey, I'm Paul. And he says, I'm an apostle, I'm a sent one. And so he says, "Uh, like I, there's things about me that I'm like, why am I on this stage right now? This should not be my job. Everything about my life pointed in a completely different direction. I wanted to go into the film industry. Uh, This was, you know, not part of my life. And then God called me through a whole random bunch of events to go into ministry, and so, but what I wanted to do when I got to college is I loved academics. So I loved studying the Bible, I loved scholarship, I loved, so I started being a TA and doing lectures at the school, loved it. And that was the route I wanted to go on. So I moved to Vancouver, uh, and I was gonna be there for two or three years, and then I was gonna go overseas and do a PhD and become a professor. Because here's the thing, I love like sitting in a library reading footnotes and people are the worst. <laughs> like people are the worst. That's why like I wouldn't make a good pastor. That's what was in my head. I'm like, I can't, like, like footnotes don't like, like cheat on their spouse and send dumb emails to the church. I don't know, the volume's too loud in the worship and why don't you start a singles ministry? It's like, figure your life out. It's not the church's job. <laughs> so I like didn't wanna become a pastor. I'm like, I don't, I don't wanna do this. And God's like, no, no, I don't only really want you to become a pastor, I want you to stay in Vancouver and plant a church. And I'm like, oh no, a church in Vancouver. Like we're talking about, talk about progressive ideology. This is the left coast. And now I'm gonna start a church for a bunch of people who don't have any interest in the Bible. Nobody likes Jesus. And they all think they're connected to the universe because they wear Lululemon pants and eat kale and carry a water bottle. And I gotta tell them that, hey guys, the one common denominator in your life for the disaster that is your life is not your family. It's not the person beside you, it's you. It's because you keep trying to be the hero of your own life and Jesus is the actual hero. And you need to repent of your sin and give your life to Jesus. And people started getting saved. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is offensive. I'm gonna go get my friend. And then their friend would come and their friend would get saved. And their marriage would be, it was crazy. Because everyone said, here's the deal. And you planted a church in Canada, it's not gonna work. And if it, the only way it's gonna work is if you know you just kind of get up there, You're like, don't preach to people, no one wants to be preached at anymore, and don't talk about sin. Just like, just like hey, everybody, pear shaped tones, you don't want to scare any Canadians. You have ideas, and I have ideas. We all have ideas. Sorry, and that's the only thing that's going to work to reach anybody in this postmodern. And I'm like, that sounds like the boringest church I would ever be a part of in my life. So I just like gathered 16 people in my house and just started yelling at them and just being like, hey, listen, 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 you're a disaster. You are sinful, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. That's Jesus from Revelation three, not me talking to the church. And you need to give your life to Jesus. And people started meeting Jesus and all these crazy things started happening because it was like, I don't know what to actually do. And so I would just preach through the book of math. I I actually just opened up a Bible book and just started preaching verse by verse. And one of the first series we ever did, we're in this little elementary school gym. I preached through the gospel of Matthew for three and a half years. There were no topics. I would just end at a verse and be like, all right, well, we're picking it up in... Chapter 16, verse seven B, next week. And there was no plan. I just got very excited about the Bible. Like right now, this sermon, I'm only on the word Paul. Right now, <laughs> we're still talking about Paul. Just that word. Like that's how jacked up I get about the Bible. So I, <laughs> so I would just preach and preach through Matthew. Preach through Matthew, seven and a half years or three and a half years, 700 people got baptized during that time. 700 in, in post-Christian Canada, which means everyone told me you gotta entertain everybody. You know, bring everybody to church, get on your unicycle, dee 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 I want you to come back, everybody. Just like we do every Easter, every Christmas. Hell, oh, everybody, look how cool we are. Come back, no one comes back. So, people started meeting Jesus. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And then the church grew from 50 to 300. And then we're in this little elementary school gym. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And it was like, we have to go to the dreaded two services. And I was like, oh no, two services? I gotta preach to all these morons again every week. (laughs) Ah, okay. And so I remember I got up and uh, I, I was talking to... The church, I'm like, hey, listen, we gotta go to two services. And this woman walks up to me after. She's like, we cannot go to two services. I'm like, why not? She's like, this will be the nail in our coffin. And I'm like, we're in a coffin right now? I thought we were doing pretty good. She's like, this is gonna kill community. The church is all about community. Now I'm gonna show up and I'm not gonna be able to go to lunch with, you know, with Penelope or whatever. We're not gonna be able to, you know, everyone's gonna be, where do service do you go to? So the next week I got up and I said, listen, I didn't start a church so you could get more friends. I started a church because every single week people die like my father and go to hell and we're starting a second service because we wanna reach them. And the next week, the next week went to two services and we grew by 50 people in a, well, she left. So 49 people in a week, in a week, just by going to two services. And I was like, my gosh, this might actually work. And people started to meet Jesus. And people's lives started to be changed because we trusted in, if you, if you look at this, look at this. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus, underline that. Chapter one, verse one, shouldn't be hard to find. What is he an apostle of? Who? Christ Jesus. Now this is really important because this means that you, uh, 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 contrary to new age philosophy, you are not the center of your own story and going inside yourself and finding your inner and make something of your life. No, no, no. Christianity says you have to die to yourself in order to live. You need to reject yourself and find Jesus because Paul goes, Christ Jesus is the center of the story. He is your only power and your only hope. Anything else will crush you. And here's the beautiful thing. He's specifically talking about Christ, not God in general. Everybody in the greater Indianapolis area believes in God. It's whatever you want him to be. I don't know. I grew up on like the Bette Midler version of God, like from a distance, the world, you know, whatever, right? Like Some guy up in the clouds, so distant, and if I'm a good person, maybe he'll love me one day and accept me to go to heaven, but he really hates people and he's a lightning bolt. Whatever, you believe in God, I believe in God. That ain't good enough. Do you know how many churches I could go in and listen to the worship music and half of those songs could be sung in a Buddhist temple? Because they're so general. God is with you, yeah. (laughs) What? What he says is that's, no, that's just vague spirituality. I'm talking about the life and, and, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular, that he lived a perfect life in your place because you could not live it. He died a brutal death on a cross, took the wrath of God on himself so that you didn't have to feel it, and then rose again from death to give you life. That is what he said has to define your life, that your life needs to be about Jesus. And here's the problem. Many of you, you grew up, even if you grew up in church, you grew up in religious settings. Meaning, if you're a good person, you can top up the death of Christ by being a good person. You make sure you don't watch any rated R movies. Make sure you, you give to the church. Make sure you attend the church. Make sure you don't do these things. Make sure you read Oswald Chambers, and then you'll be a good person. And you can top up what God has done. And the problem is, if you read the Bible as if it's like that. Like, there's two ways of reading the Bible. One of the ways is if it's about you. The other way is that it's about him. And if you read it like it's about you, here's how it begins to feel. You open it up and you read the David and Goliath story, and you, you know, you've heard that preached or you were taught it in Sunday school that, you know, oh, you know, Goliath is down there and he represents all your fears and anxiety and stress. And, you know, there's there's Goliath in your life. And if you can just be like David and go down and slay the giants of fear and anxiety, then you can be like David too. And that reading of the Bible will crush you, because that's not how you read it. You know that story? It's that, it's that Jesus Christ was D- David for you. It's that he went into the valley and defeated Satan's sin and death, and then imputed it to you, even though you did nothing. You know who you are in that story? You're the Israelites, hanging out in the bushes, going, I hope David wins for us. You aren't the hero, you're a loser. (laughs) I will not be back again, but anyways. (laughs) But you gotta embrace that about yourself. If you think you're a winner, you're gonna lose. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us in the Greek, the foolish things of the world, and he calls us fools. The Greek word is moron, I love it. Because then on Sundays I can say, You're a moron. Because we are. We mess up every single day. We make mistakes. And every single day, Jesus goes down and fights a battle for us and imputes it to us if we will just accept it, not try to achieve it. That's how you read the Bible. If you read the Bible in any other way, it will crush you. When you're doing your Devos in the morning and you're sitting there and you're going through the Gospels and you got your coffee and Jesus is hanging out with all these different people, who are you when you read those stories? Right, You're always Jesus. That's the wrong way to read the Bible. You're not, you got your coffee there, you've already taken your Instagram photo. Hey. (laughs) Hashtag (laughs) divos. And Jesus is hanging out with the prostitutes and, Hanging out with the tax collectors and you say, This has to be my life. What would Jesus do? Well, I'm gonna do that. And you don't realize you're the tax collector in the story. You hoard your own money every single day. You're the prostitute in the story who needs the grace of Jesus to touch you in ways because you you elevate money and power and beauty and family and reputation above Jesus and cheat on him every single day. And you need him to keep pursuing you and hanging out with you and saying, it's okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. You're them, not him. And this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, listen, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle, that, that's someone like a sent one. Like, like if you've read the life of Paul, he was, he was gritty. He was like, I'm not gonna stay here in the safety of my house. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not worship money. I'm not gonna worship safety. I'm gonna travel around, plant churches, love on people, preach the gospel. And his life, he got shipwrecked. He was, he was stoned to death. He was stoned. People tried to kill him multiple times. This guy lived a gritty life. How does that reflect on your life? Like, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was like, I thought the church was gonna be full of like, undomesticated, gritty, raw people. Like, I would sit out in front of my school, and I just, like, I was smoking since I was in, like, grade eight. So I was like, smoke cigarettes, read the Bible, hang out with my friend who was a witch. Very interesting picture, if you were to take it. I'd be like, what do you think about Jesus? She'd be like, what do you think about uh, Summerland? And we would just chat and talk and hang out. And I'd read the Bible, and every time I read it, it was, like, these gritty raw people, getting their heads cut off, getting stretched apart, getting killed by lions. And I thought, my gosh, if I ever go to a church, it's gonna be raw, just like that. I'm gonna go in, it's just gonna be like, sit down. Whips and flares going up. And the worship slides will be just blood splattered across it. Like, we're gonna worship Jesus, man, he died. This is gritty. And I walked into church and it was, everyone was so nice and it was safe for the whole family. Come on out to the potluck, Mark. And there was like worship slides were like birds hovering over flowers, sucking pollen out of flowers. I'm like, ah, this is like the opposite of what I thought this was about. In many ways, Christianity has lost the barbarian spirit. We've lost the apostolic, like we're grinders. We're gritty. You know, Mark Batterson talks about the idea that in leadership, the number one character trait in the leader that's gonna reach the next generation is authenticity. You understand that the church is not a country club, it's a hospital for broken, messed up sinners like you and me that need to come here every week and look around at these people and not judge them, but realize they are just as much in the need of the grace of God as you. Because if you judge them, here's the problem. When I showed up at church, I would walk into church. There's a guy who walked up to my wife. He said, Aaron, you're not allowed to date Mark anymore. What are you talking about? Well, the pastor just preached a uh, sermon on not being unequally yoked and you're unequally yoked. Aaron's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I saw Mark smoking out in front of the church. I used to go, I used to try to hide it. So I'd go around the back of the church Smoked my cigarette before I went in. And then I realized that the, the, the window, it was like a double reflector and it was the senior pastor's office and the whole worship team was in there before the worship service and they're all like praying. And I'm like. <laughs> you know, and, and they're all, so he's like, I, saw him, I saw, him worship, uh, saw him smoking. And Aaron's like, well, what was he smoking? And he's like, what do you mean? Was he smoking? He's smoking cigarettes? And he's like, she's like, well, better than what he used to smoke. Because here's the deal, never judge a person by where they're at, judge where they're coming from. Where are they coming from, man? You don't know their story. You don't know their background. You don't know how much they are a product of the absolute grace of God in their life that they need it. And if you actually went inside yourself a little bit, you would realize you're just as lost as them but you might not look it. And here's Paul, he's going, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he says, by the will of God, underline that, the will of God, because right off the bat, chapter one, verse one, he says, there's a will of God. And you and I, We tend to be part of a generation that everybody wants to know exactly what the will of God is for their life. And what we mean by that is we wanna know all the details. And we think, because we're entitled, that God should tell us a whole bunch of information that he never said he was gonna, he's not gonna tell you the name of the person you're supposed to marry. That's what we want. I'm confused, Lord, tell me. And you're looking in your cereal for signs. I don't know who I'm supposed to marry. And you see you know, an S in the clouds. Oh, Sarah, I'm supposed to marry Sarah. So it's a a sign. God's gonna, Margaret, marry Margaret. Oh, thank you for the clarity. What city am I supposed to go to? Am I supposed to live in Pittsburgh? Am I supposed to live in New York? Am I supposed to go to this school or that school? And put out a fleece, try to figure it out as if God's gonna tell you, that's not how this works, man. Oh, I saw a Pittsburgh Steelers sweatshirt. That means I gotta go to Pittsburgh. Ah. Here's the thing that's not the way the will of God works. That's an entitlement philosophy where you think God owes you information. He never told you who's gonna give you. What he does say is whoever you marry, serve her like Christ served the church. That's the will of God for your life. I'm not gonna tell you her name. I'm not gonna tell you the city you're supposed to be a part of. Whatever city you end up in, serve that city like Jesus wants you to serve it. That's the will of God for your life. And then he says this, the will of God, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful to Christ Jesus, I love that, faithful, meaning meaning you, you you get to the end. You don't just like, Believe once, anybody, who, who knows this? Anybody can start something, right? Any, any person can get married, right? I'm a pastor, I do a lot of weddings, but I kind of got sick of them because all these young couples, like, oh, I wanna do my own vows. You're like, oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> oh, Tammy, I wrote you a poem, Tammy. And you're just sitting there going, bro, just the old vows work. You don't need to create new vows. You're a terrible poet. (laughs) Any moron can get married. Anybody can put a tuxedo on and show up. Because we know, man, it's day one. I love you. I love you. Of course you do. Of course you do. You dated for nine months. You look the best in this moment you'll ever look and all your friends are excited and you know the next six months, gonna be awesome. You learn new things, you get a new toaster. I'm so so happy to be married. Yeah, we all get it. What I'm asking is fast forward 15 years and you both been wearing jogging pants for a month. (laughs) Then talk to me about Tammy, (laughs) love you Tammy. (laughs) The question is not how good is your marriage on the first day. The question is how good is your marriage on the last day? The day you stop breathing, when you're 86 years old and it's all over, did you stay faithful to the end? That's what he's saying here. Those who are faithful, in Christ Jesus. Not just believed once, you got to your last day and you still love and treasure Jesus above everything else. You still love and tre- and I mean treasure, because treasuring him is the most beautiful thing in the world. Anybody can believe, but do you actually treasure him above everything? See, here's the thing, I remember years ago, I was asked to go speak at this apologetics conference and I spoke at it and they said, give us like a 10 point defense of the resurrection of Christ. So I got up and I did all these defenses of the, you know, the Roman Empire. The one thing they knew how to do was kill people, right? Jesus didn't like, because that was the big swoon theory. You know, they crucified him and he didn't really die. And then they just threw him in kind of this pit. And then he got up and he's like, whew, that was close. They just started walking around. <laughs> I am risen. Everyone, holy smokes, we saw him crucified. The one thing the Roman Empire knew how to do is kill people. They kill 6,000 people on crucifixes, sometimes in one day. Anyway, I go through all these apologetics defenses of the resurrection, it's totally legit. And the church is like, yes. And by the end, everyone's on their feet and they're like, this happened. I'm like, do you believe that this resurrection actually happened? And everyone to the person is like, yes. And I'm like, awesome. So does Satan. And it doesn't save him because he doesn't treasure it above every other truth in the universe. So it, don't, it doesn't save him. The question of your faithfulness is gonna be me. Can you, not only, when I baptize people, I always say, do you take Jesus Christ as your Lord, your savior, and your treasure? Because I don't want you to just believe in him. I want you to love him more than everything else in the universe, including your money, your kids, your spouse, everything, your job. And so he says, okay, faithful in Jesus Christ at the end, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he says this word, grace to you. Most important word you can grab a hold of right now, grace. You know what grace means? Undeserved favor. It means you could never earn this, no matter how good you are. Some of us are still trying to earn favor in front of God And the minute we try to do it, we say, well, why did Jesus Christ have to come and die on a cross if we could earn our salvation? If you could perform and accomplish great things for God, he would have never had to come and die. Here's the thing about grace. Every single one of you is a recipient of it. And once you embrace it, then you can actually start living a bit of a free life because you're just a product of the grace of God. You don't have to defend your reputation. My reputation is a disaster. He, CJ, I don't know where Pastor CJ got that bio. I guess someone sent it to him about like, he won the evangelism. I won an evangelism award guys in 2018. The word evangelism award. Couldn't tell you what that is, but I won it. 2018. Man, you know, talk about vision. But a couple months ago, our church went on a retreat to Orange County. So it was like all the staff members and the board members, we all went, and we're flying back with an hour flight back to Sacramento. And we're on the plane, me and my wife are there. People in front of us, our board member and his wife. And as they get talking to the girl in front of them, I just keep hearing her talking like Jesus, talk about Jesus. I went, so I'm sitting there, at, you know, 45 minutes into the flight, they turn around and this girl goes, hey, and the board member's wife says, hey, uh, she wants to tell you something. I want you to meet our pastor. I said, oh, hello, how you meet? She's like, hi, i want to tell you. Well, what you I just received Jesus as my Lord and Savior on this plane right now. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. You know what I was doing for that hour? Watching (laughs) She-Hulk. Yeah, but I'm the evangelism award winner, y'all. I got it, I got it, it's it's on my bookshelf. I won an award for this. Give me a break. When I was planting my church just outside of Vancouver, there was a massive Asian community and I wanted to try to reach it. And there was this guy at the back of the church. I remember I walked up, I said, dude, we're gonna plant a Chinese community group. You're gonna do it. We gotta reach the Chinese contingent of our neighborhood. And he's like, yeah, no, that's a really great idea. Um, But I'm Korean. (laughs) I'm like, I know. He's talking about it saying you'd be good at it. Like, I'm the guy on this stage. What am I doing here? Uh, there was this, about six months before we planted our church, uh, I was 29 years old, working at the church that we were planting out of, and uh, I told a woman that her husband was dead and I had the wrong guy. <laughs> dead true story. I went and visited this man on a Friday afternoon in his, in his hospital, we chatted, talked about, but he wasn't doing well. I went home for the weekend. I went back to visit him on the Monday. Go to the hospital, walk into his room, and I see this body and it's facing the window, and I walk up to it and the nurse grabs me on my shoulder. She says, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm here for a visitation. I'm a pastor, I'm just coming to visit. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, he passed away this morning. Now, if you're taking notes on what to do when you're a pastor, when someone says, he passed away this morning, say, who? (laughs) What's his name? (laughs) Spell it. But I didn't. I'm like, okay. So I just went back to the office. Told the secretary, hey, David died. Okay, went to my office, started working for two hours. No joke. She comes into our office. She's like, "Hey, listen, David's wife is here. She's got a like a subway sandwich, and she's on her way to go visit David at the hospital." And I'm like, "No, they, they definitely told her. No, I don't. I don't. Th- I don't think so. Okay, send her back." So she comes back to the office, and I look at her, and I said, "Hey, I went and visited David this morning. David's dead." <laughs> at which point, she passed out. 100% of this story is true. I put her on the couch. So go get some water. And we sat there and we mourned the death of David for an hour. We planned his funeral. She's like, it was really crazy. I was there yesterday. He was fine. Like, well, these things happen quick sometimes. This is like, you never know. And then I walked out of the office to get a bottle of water for her. And I heard the secretary talk about a different hospital and said David's name. I'm like, David's at this hospital, right? No, they moved him on Saturday. What? (laughs) I need you to call the hospital right now. So they called the hospital and David was sitting up waiting for his sandwich. (laughs) And then I had to go back into the room. I'm like, hey, <laughs> what's up? Remember that thing we were talking about? <laughs> I was just kidding. Now I guarantee you haven't had a day as bad as that. And I'm the one on stage. But let me tell you something. Satan used that in my life to destroy me. He spoke lies to me after that event and said, you are not good enough to go plant your own church. All you're gonna do is hurt people. Abandon the plan. And I needed people to come around me and do to me what they need to do to some of you, which is, oh, you think God's gonna use you because of your past, because you're so great. No, you don't understand something. There's a word called grace. And that means he's gonna do something with you, not because of you, but in spite of you. He's gonna do it because he is good, not because you are good. Because of his accomplishment, not because of your accomplishment, because of his performance, not your performance. And he's gonna take you and all your stupidity, Mark, and he's gonna do something with you anyway. And the minute you begin to think he's gonna do something or not do something because you made a mistake, you've lost the gospel. And so he's saying, hey guys, grace to you, grace because these are the kind of people he uses. Listen, uh, I read this meme the other day. I I read it to you for your encouragement. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob lied. Leah was ugly. (laughs) The Hebrew says Leah was weak about the eyes. It's fascinating. Joseph was abused. Moses was a murderer. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young. David was an adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was a murderer. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus was dead. So you already got one up on him. And you don't think God can use you? It's exactly what he does. And then once you begin to figure out your identity and what you have to offer the world, you begin to realize God will take all of your past and all those things that happened to you and all the mistakes you've made and all the dumb things you've done, he's gonna use them to connect to people that need to know Jesus. And they're gonna be just like you. And that's why you have to retain your uniqueness. Paul starts out, he goes, I'm Paul. He doesn't go, hey, this is just a vague letter from a bunch of people, everybody, you have ideas, I have ideas, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm Paul, I'm the murderer, I got a a story. And the minute you begin to do that, you begin to realize that comparing yourself to other people is the ultimate in toxicity toward your contentment. The minute you start comparing yourself, If I had to compare myself to Pastor CJ, man, I'm like, dude, this guy's got it together. He's smart, he's articulate, he dresses well, he's up here. You're not twitching his face around on those big screens. You think I like that? Look it up, that's 4K. (laughs) Switching my, do you know how many times I've asked God, take this away from me, man, so that they can concentrate easier. And he answers the same thing he did to the Apostle Paul. That little thorn in his flesh that he said, I want God to take this away. God goes, no, I like that little twitch. <laughs> because when 96 people randomly get baptized, no one's gonna say it was because of you. They're gonna say it's because of me. Because when you look small, I look big. That's what God does, and then look at this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Some of you just really quick, you don't relate to God as Father yet. You have him as God, but he's not your your Father. Islam says, never ever ever can you call God Father. Christianity comes along and goes, it's exactly what you get him as. I uh, live 10 minutes from Folsom Prison. You guys know what Folsom Prison, you've heard Folsom Prison blues, right, Johnny Cash. When I grew up in Canada, that's all I knew of it. Then I moved to Sacramento. We actually have a church campus in Folsom Prison, right? And so every morning I get up and say, hey, Folsom Prison guys, 400 dudes in orange jumpsuits that come to our church. And when I meet them, sometimes they come out, the first thing they do is come to a service. And they always say the same thing. Man, you're smaller in real life, bro. because we got these big video screens in there. And I remember we went in there to do a conference and I was nervous. I'm going into Folsom, to murder the liars, thieves, and we're going in Folsom prison. And I thought, well, okay, it's gotta be like, there's gotta be like a, like a security will walk us in and then there'll be like a plastic wall between us and all these criminals. And it wasn't like that. <laughs> we just, we actually we were standing outside and they're like, okay, we're gonna go in now. And then all these alarms started going, neat, neat, neat. and I'm like, what? They're like, okay, someone just got stabbed. I'm like, all right, well, that's a wrap. We'll just head home now. And they're like, no, no, just a 10-minute delay. And I see this guy literally come out in the gurney. He's like, I'm like, that's okay? Yeah, I'll just clean it up. All right, gates are open. We go in, walking right through general population. It's exactly what you see in the movies. Guys work it out, big tatties. I'm like walking in, I'm like, what's up? What's <laughs> up? Preach the Bible, and I walked in the room, and I remember this guy walked up to me, and I'm like, "Oh man, I gotta make sure, like, I keep my distance. Like, I I didn't know what was going on. I they gonna be changed? What's going on?" This guy walks right up to me. This gives me the biggest hug I've ever received in my life. He looks me clear-eyed in the face. He just said, "How are Aaron and the kids?" And I'm like, "You know my family? <laughs> Freaking me out, man." <laughs> And so I got up and I preached the prodigal son story. And this son that was wayward and spent all his money and did all this nonsense. And the minute he repents and starts to run back, the father runs toward him. In that culture, you never ran. The father, the patriarch, wouldn't run. And he lifts up his, his, uh, you know, his attire and he runs and then he puts it on the robe on this son, this wayward son. He puts the ring on his finger and the, 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 the sandals on his feet and he throws a party for him. And I looked at all of these guys in the room, 400 guys in the room, and I asked this question. I said, how many of you had fathers that abandoned you when you were kids? How many of you had fathers that were drunks and and maybe hit members of your family and completely neglected you and every single hand in the room went up? And I looked at them and said, in Jesus Christ, you get the father that will never leave you. You get a father who will never drink too much, who will never be a deadbeat, who will never live up to what he's called to do to love and serve and lead a family. You get a father who will be faithful to you the minute, no matter how many times you mess up, the minute you turn back to him, he runs towards you and throws a party for you. And these guys are weeping because the power of a father that you get only through Jesus, there's nothing like it, it's incomparable. So here's the beauty of a father. Um, A father like that will hunt you down. And some of you right now are getting hunted down by this good father, right in your seats. He's doing something in you that you didn't come in here expecting him to do. And now you're not really sure what to do about it because you like sense in something. You know what that is? The old hymn writers used to call God, you ever heard the phrase, the hound of heaven? The fast, like the hound, like the bloodhound, <laughs> Like the dog. The hound of heaven. I remember that phrase came to me off the top of my head while I was preaching a couple weeks ago. And I was in church, I'm like, God's gonna, you know, the hymn writer, the hound of heaven. And this woman walked up to me at the end of the service, no joke, she looked at me and said, on my way here in the car, my 14, 15 year old son said, I'm never coming to church again. This is the last time I'm coming to church. And she said, I pulled over to the side of the road and I started to cry and I said, fine son, you never have to come again, but here's the deal. I will trust that God will seek you out because he's the hound of heaven. Kid shows up in church, I'm preaching, never used that phrase in my life. And I go, you know what the old hymn writer did? The hound of heaven. The kid goes, That kid is front row every week now. Right? That's what happens, man. That's what happens. He hunts you down. He does stuff you could never imagine. I'll give you one last illustration of that and then I want to pray for us. So about three weeks after this woman, who I had told her husband was dead, about three weeks later, the senior pastor of the church that I'm working at comes into my office and says, listen, I was just praying in my office and God told me that you were supposed to go and visit her and apologize for what you did. And I'm like, that's the last thing I feel like doing. So I'm gonna put that off a couple of weeks. And he's like, no, no, no. It was very clear to me, this has to be done today. I'm like, okay. I don't even know her address. He goes, go find it. This was in the old days, like like the the church directory, Remember A church directory you could look up and and all the faces and names. So I looked up her address, secretary gave me her directions to her house. I drive to her house like one or two in the afternoon. I get to the house and I can see someone's there because there's a car in the driveway and I knock on the door and she doesn't answer. But I stand there for 10 minutes knocking because I know she's there. So finally she opens the door and she's wearing her pajamas. Two o'clock in the afternoon, she goes, what do you want? That was her opening line. What do you want? And I'm like, hey, can I just come in and chat? Like, I really want to apologize for what I did. It was a a total dumb move on my part. And she's like, yeah, come in. So I go in her living room and we sit there for like three hours. And we talk theology and we become buds, man. I pray for her. Obviously, I grovel, apologize for this terrible thing I did. And I go to leave and I'm standing at her front door and she says this to me. Do you know why I'm sitting here in my pajamas at one or two o'clock in the afternoon? I said, no. She said, because over the last three weeks, I have been going through so much trauma from what you did that I walked down the stairs today and said, God, today, I'm gonna take my own life. And then she said, I sat down on the chair in my living room and said, the only thing that will make me not do this is if you send someone to the door this afternoon to encourage me and know that there is a message from you. I fell asleep on the chair and woke up to the sound of you knocking on the door. If you disbelieve in the existence of God, you got to give up that doubt. Because I think part of the reason we choose not to believe isn't because we're smarter than everybody in this room. It's because there's a cowardice. There's a fear in what people might think. He is the hound of heaven, man. And he is hunting you down. He is putting people in your life, events in your life, things in your life. He's doing things in your life that you don't even know about. And the question is, Do you respond or ignore him? Will you say in my life, in all my brokenness, in light of the grace of God and the cross of Jesus, I will believe that God will use me in order to point people to him and I will decrease and he must increase. That's what the apostle Paul is doing at the beginning of this. And he's laying it out for you and me. Father, I do pray in this moment that if there are people here that are just feeling you draw them, which is what you say you will do, that our job is to lift up Jesus and you will draw men and women to yourself. So in this moment, in this room, if there are people who need to give their life to you for the first time, that they would have the courage to do so. And if, you, if that's you, you can just pray with me, Jesus, I want to take your sacrifice on my behalf and believe and trust in that for eternal life. That you went to the cross and died for my sin because of my sin. And I want your righteousness instead of that sin. I receive your grace into my life right now, in this moment. I'm drawing a line in the sand that today is the day that I believe in the Lord Jesus. Your life, your death on my behalf, and your resurrection. Holy Spirit, fill my life, my soul, so that I can live this out to my last day. And for those of us in this room that have already trusted you, Jesus, I pray you would just whisper encouragement to us that you're not finished with us, that no matter the mistakes we've made, no matter the sins we've done, you will use us, that there is a future here. And let us be a people that walk out these doors on mission for you that in the time you've given to us, whatever that is, that we'd make the most of you. And let us really believe this. Some of us in this room, I can just sense, they don't really, they're not convinced that you're wanting to forgive them. They think that you kind of like dread it, but man, it's the reason you came. Let us believe it. In your good name we pray, amen.